So while I was gone, I got some headphones. Okay. And I found a drink, and then I went in search of a second drink, Mm -hmm. and I found three more drinks. (laughs) And I also, while searching my fridge, I found the remains of a chocolate dinosaur that my girlfriend gave me. A headless chocolate dinosaur. Well, I ate the head and the tail like a year and a half ago. (laughs) And I stashed it in the back of the fridge, and I forgot about it until just now. So I went and so I also got a jar of peanut butter, and I may uh, Peter Pan peanut butter. Dude, dude, dude! Most people save the heads and the tails to make dino stock. So I don't know why they chose that part of the dinosaur. Yeah, the bone, the the bone, the best meats in the breast and the thighs. (laughs) This is an apatosaurus. It's not a. Oh, oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. It gets really dry. It gets really dry in the oven, so you get it. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's a paddalicious. And brine that if you want. It's nice, staying nice and moist. <laughs> yeah, the Flintstones were fucking fat. They were eating dinosaurs all the time. Like, that's a nutritious diet. I wonder if the Flintstone, like, did Bedrock have an obesity problem? Like, was Probably not, because everyone ran their cars everywhere. <laughs> well, Will and Betty aren't aren't. Oh, that, it's true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And I guess Fred and Bart. We don't know how yeah. old they are, though. I mean, it could have been like six hundred years a old. December marriage. Yeah, <laughs> it could have been. To be fair, I mean, they're cavemen. So they're probably like. Well, I guess they're post-puberty because they've had children. But I was going to say, didn't they get married I'm, at like seven back then? I'm now seriously disturbed by the idea that in Bedrock, like Betty and Wilma are like thirteen. Uh. <laughs> Okay. You die at 35, so yeah. Fred and Barney are probably like 24. That's yeah. true, yeah. That's still creep. That's almost twice Mr. There. Slade is 33. Yeah. Fred- yeah. yeah. He's 17. <laughs> Fred is 17 years old. <laughs> oh. I'm so- somebody hasn't... This this needs to turn into a meme. It's like uh, realis- realistic Flintstones. <laughs> yes. Mr. Slate is 21. <laughs> um, so, this is not where I was expecting this to there, go. There are no bird record players. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I lo- yesterday when I was... Oh, go ahead. This is actually on topic. So I, I, I love the idea oh. of... Keep, keep talking in about in the realistic Flintstones of, like, sitting a stone record on the record player and manually spinning it and then trying to force <laughs> a bird's beak down onto it <laughs> as the bird cries out in pain. Feathers everywhere. <laughs> Without a snappy comeback. Yeah. <laughs> Usually just some form of it's a living. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's true. I've forgotten that. I haven't watched that show since I was a child. What, you didn't catch last week's episode? (laughs) (laughs) Seth MacFarlane MacFarlane has wanted to reboot Flintstones for years. Sure he has. Hmm. Something else. Yeah, he says lots of things. It's another pie for him to get his grubby, shit-stained fingers into. Wait, who's the he in this sense? Seth MacFarlane. Seth, Seth MacFarlane. Him? <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Thank you. I actually did need to know who you said, though, because I hadn't heard it. <laughs> the final creator of both Family Guy and Cosmos, because how does that make sense? Who cares? <laughs> And, uh, oh, what did, oh, um, it was... Uh, Carol. 
the, oh, the Patrick Stewart show. Uh, McFarland was the like, executive producer on that, I think. Um, the Patrick Stewart show? Oh, was, this, was this like his late night talk show in the 90s? <laughs> yeah. No, no this, he, he, I mean, this was... Sorry, Patrick, do you actually know what it was? Yeah, um, Patrick Stewart had a comedy show running on Showtime where he basically plays a um, Fox News-style uh, news host who's got, like, this completely insane personal life. Huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, what was it called? Blunt Talk. Blunt, okay, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was Stars, but, uh, yeah. yeah. You're right, it was Stars. Hmm. Um, uh, it also yeah, is the, the Patrick, we'll just let Patrick Stewart whatever the hell he feel, do whatever the hell he feels like <laughs> doing at this point show. Yeah, uh, it was written by Jonathan Ames, who wrote, uh, Bored to Death, and he's written some graphic novels, um, uh, All right. So yesterday, Hillary extemporaneously uh, wrote our summary for the film. So I have a summary prepared. Oh, excellent! <laughs> I, I'm glad I'm, this hasn't happened for like a year and a half. I'm, re- I'm really glad Hillary did that because which, I didn't. <laughs> which is what's funny. This isn't even a hard one to summarize. Well, it's a fairly straightforward movie. Almost too. Well, one could say, at least compared to some of the other, not, at least, at least, you know, God help us when we get to days for future past. I am not looking forward to having summarized that. <laughs> I think we we'll, we'll need a chart. I'm. I, if you let me summarize days for future past, it's just going to be like time travel. Fuck it all. That will be my official summary. <laughs> all right. Uh, I think I would probably call it forget four of the last five movies. <laughs> Just to throw them away. I would call it I would call it the Wolverine that saved Pittsburgh. <laughs> oh god, that that movie. Yeah. So, uh you guys want to talk about Thor? Yes. Okay. Sorry are you recording things now, or do I need to start a uh, recording track? I have been recording since the call began. Of okay, then I'm going to... Of every, everyone Wait, and everything. <laughs> okay, Wait, so, that, yeah. this is a problem, then. <laughs> I shouldn't have confessed to all those murders. <laughs> At least you confessed. I mean, you know, it's not like you were trying to hide them. It's, it's, it's okay, Patrick. Podcasts aren't admissible as evidence. <laughs> <laughs> no, God. your own podcast is not uh, as visible as it. But if you like, uh, if you like, go on uh, WTF with Mark Marin, like you, you could get arrested for that. It's fair game. So oh, I'm yeah. safe I mean, on here, but if I go to your stupid minds again, yeah, yeah. I can't confess to Mark. <laughs> exactly, yeah. that's right. Jury's still out on the flop house, though. Like some of their episodes, you can you yeah. can you're all right, but I don't know. Oh my God, I was uh, as long as it's recorded on U.S. soil, I think it's admissible. Yeah, I was uh, I was listening to the uh, bullet to the head episode that they just re-released, <laughs> and it's, it's it's the greatest thing I've ever heard. My my favorite is their Bratz movie episode. Yeah. Bratz is amazing. Bullet to the head is amazing. Uh, I really liked Food Fight. I've never listened. to it. Flophouse. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> Food fight is uh, Thor, horrific. Thor, yes. So we uh, uh, okay. We'll back up. Three, two. Uh, this is shit. Hold on. <laughs> All right, back up. Okay. This is cinema excelsior. <laughs> Stop making that face. <laughs> this is cinema excelsior. <laughs> They were talking about four. Uh, God damn it! 
today, four movements. Yeah, Stefan? yeah today we're, we're talking about oh my God, four. Talking about four. The Mighty Four, a sequel to the Fantastic Four. <laughs> Prequel to the Fantastic Four. We're talking about Thor. Uh, and jo- joining us today on our roundtable, uh, we have uh, our Warriors 3 uh, at the table today. Nice. We have, uh, in the role of Hogan, the stoic Ronin-like warrior, we have Mr. Patrick Regan. Yes. I will refrain from doing this entire thing in what would probably be a horrifically racist Japanese accent. Really slow. Really <laughs> stretch the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just do it and then just be yeah, no. Yep. Let's not do that. In the uh in the role of Fandrill, the swashbuckler, we have Mr. Derek Long. Yes, do not mistake my appetite for apathy. I know that's not Thandrill. I kinda look like Thandrill, but I wanted to say that line. It's good. It's good. You you really brought something to it. <laughs> we'll replace you with someone else in the next okay, time yeah, when yeah. we do Dark World. And, just overdub the name. Yes. And in the role of uh, Volstag, the Bacnalian Voluminous Glutton Warrior, we have Mr. Daniel Watson Jones. Volstag is ready. <laughs> I should clarify, by the way, that Volstag the Voluminous is his official Marvel title. That's Hogan a- is Hogan the Grim. And Frondel? I don't remember what Frondel's adjective is. It's something. <laughs> I, I wanted to look up uh, how many of these are actual uh, Norse mythological figures. I know Loki is obviously, um, and Sif I think is. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll be pl- uh, I'll be is. I'll be playing Sif by the way because uh, I was on Kyle X Y. Oh, yeah, um, no, that's not. Fandral <laughs> <laughs> is Fandral the dr- the dashing. <laughs> you made that uh, up. No, he's not. Look at the Wikipedia. Okay, okay, okay. okay. That explains the thing. He's very Errol Flinney. Yep. Yeah, explicitly Errol Flinney. Um, that was. Uh, you could write a really salacious biography called "The Explicit Errol Flynn." Um. <laughs> yes. So t- today we're talking about Thor. Uh, a couple pieces of trivia before we go into summary. Uh, first of all, the original pitched director for the film was actually Sam Raimi, who pitched it in the 90s, and it was going to be a made-for-TV film at one point for UPN. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, there was kind of a revolving door of directors on th- this production. Uh, Matthew Vaughn almost did it, uh, who would later go on to do uh, X-Men First Class. Uh, Guillermo del Toro almost did it, but as is his style, got bored and left. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and then Kenneth Branagh finally took over. Um, yeah, I don't have much about Thor. He's he's a god of thunder. He's a Norse guy, big guy, Viking, blonde hair, hammer, hammer. got a hammer, got a, got a hammer, wing I mean, helmet. We can, we can see that fourth grade project you did once on the Norse guy. <laughs> We can, for trivia purposes, we can point out this is the um, first movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that is not an Iron Man film. So, uh, in a lot of ways, this is actually the beginning. Does the Incredible Hulk? Because it's Iron Man. Isn't, Iron Man. isn't Incredible? Oh, Hulk the Incredible Hulk! You're right. I forgot about that. How could how could you? Well, hold on. The Incredible Hulk wasn't. Didn't didn't we discuss that that was? Hadn't someone heard that that wasn't made? As an MCU movie, they just kind of tacked that on at the end. But it's definitely in. Like, even if it wasn't made. I mean, it is, but... 
this is I mean, this one incorporates a character from Incredible Hulk and all of the uh, I would well, say that this one was set out to be part of the MCU, whereas mm-hmm. I kind of feel like with Edward Norton's Incredible Hulk, mm-hmm. the decision was made partway through to make mm-hmm. it MCU. Mm-hmm. Because the, the three major points of saying this is an MCU film are uh, there's a sh- reference to a S.H.I.E.L.D. database, the Sonic Cannons have Stark's logo on them, and then Tony Stark shows up at the end. Mm-hmm. And those all three are things you could very easily have either inserted in post or during production. Because okay. the the shield thing is just a line, Stark's logo you could literally have CGI'd on if you had felt like yeah, it, yeah. Um, and you know very clearly I know that that Tony Stark scene was shot very late we, into the cycle. We've we've so, already talked about yeah. the Incredible Hulk. Let's talk about Thor, dude. You said you were gonna yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, you right. were gonna favor us with the summary with this film. Oh yes. Uh, so uh, my girlfriend went on a, an observational rant last evening when I was rewatching the film, uh, and she was uh, joining me. Uh, so I'm going to do this in her cadence as best I can. Uh, this movie is a romance novel. Uh, and then she basically summarizes romance novels. See, there's there's this lady, but she's a scientist lady, uh, and she meets this hunky man, but she doesn't care that the, the how hunky the man is because she needs him for her science. So she has to study him and spend time with him uh, even though she doesn't want to, uh, because she wouldn't want a hunky man, uh, because she's a serious scientist lady. Uh, but then uh, she she shows him the place that she goes to be alone, and he shows her science things that she didn't know, uh, and she teaches him that he's more than just a hunky man, and he teaches her that she's more than just a scientist lady. She's also a lady. So they fall in love, and he has to save her, uh, and there's some frost giants and family drama, and then he has to leave because honor and duty. <laughs> Nailed it. And Phil and Clark Gregg is there too. <laughs> I did not know any of these romance novel tra- uh, tropes, but she, as we were, she came up with that idea. She'd seen the movie once, like last year or something, and she came up with that about a third of the way into the film, and predicted all of those future plot points uh, using the romance novel tropes. And then as we were going along, she kept pointing out more things that are common to YA romance novels and adult romance novels. It's absolutely... Uh, no, it, if, if you're describing just the parts of the film that are on Earth, um, yeah, 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 it works. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing that, that just struck me about this film when we were watching it um, is that, you know, more... you know. Okay, so comic book is not a genre, right? It's because, you know, even within just Marvel or DC, you know, that's that can cover a huge range of genres. It's yeah, it's a medium. I mean, that's, it's a medium. Um, one thing that struck me particularly when we were watching Thor was that, you know, it, it is definitely balancing more than one genre on its plate because, you know, the Asgard stuff is very high fantasy. You know, it's there's a lot of, you know, aside from all, the, you know, there's a lot of beautiful, gorgeous, you know, starry, night shots, but it's, it's, you know, this high fantasy. And on Earth, you know, you have much more of sort of a romance drama, but at the same time, whenever S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up until near the end, there's sort of a conspiracy aspect going on. I would say on Earth you you have a sitcom. It's a fish-out-of-water story, but yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's one thing that did strike me about this film, is that unlike more so than maybe some of the others, it is that it is balancing uh, more than one genre, which is kind of just 
it's it is par for the course for Thor. Is that you know that even in the comics, you basically you whenever you're writing a Thor comic, you're you're balancing you know Thor, Odin's son, talking to Odin, All Father, and Balder is there, and mm-hmm. there's the the Jotunheim world serpent, and then on the other hand, you know there's the on Earth drama where you have Thor talking to Jane Foster and fighting the Wrecking Crew. So Thor more than almost any going yeah. <laughs> for, for those of you playing at home, the Wrecking Crew are a group of supervillains who are superpowered Wrecking Crew abilities, and I'm not making that up. One of them is like a super good crowbar. Yeah, I saw them play at the <laughs> but, Electric Banana. Yeah, basically. Bulldozer, you know, pile driver, kind of, Thunderball, and the Wrecker. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Did you know, that was always going to be something. Sorry. No, go ahead, Pat. Uh, what I was going to say was that, you know, uh, this was always going to be someone going into Thor, especially where you were going to be just. Mm-hmm. And do you guys think it's effective in in doing that? I mean, my main takeaway is that, I mean, it certainly didn't um, didn't fumble that kind of mixture of genres and you know the many things that the script kind of had to do. Um, I th- I think it it did it. It, it did that kind of management in a competent way, but I didn't find it terribly satisfying at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what you, your guys' take on, on that is. I, I, would have, I felt that... Go ahead, Stefan. Uh, I, I was going to say, I, I agree, Derek, and I think the reason for me is um, it all felt very compartmentalized. Like, the there's a difference mm-hmm. between, like, balancing multiple genres in a film... Versus essentially making three different genre films and then editing them together into a film. And like, mm-hmm. I don't feel like there was enough bleed through or connective tissue between the three stylistically to make it satisfying. Dooch? And I will actually, I'll, sorry, Dooch, go ahead of me. Oh, uh, I felt very similar uh, to the two of you. I felt like the script was good uh, in a lot of respects. Um, but that at the end of the film, it, it just didn't feel compelling the first time I watched it. I liked it more, I guess, the third time I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw it once when it came out on DVD uh, years ago and remembered nothing from it. Uh, and then the second time, or the first time I watched it this week, it was eh. And then I watched it again, and I liked it a lot more the second time. But it it doesn't feel... Uh, I, uh, yeah, compelling. I guess is the best word. I, I when we watched it, I I definitely enjoyed it. I actually enjoy, enjoyed it more than I remembered enjoying it the first time. Um, but I definitely actually want to agree with Derek that I think it's the ending where it kind of mm-hmm. is where it trips because mm-hmm. you know I I don't have a problem with the 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 films being initially compartmentalized. It, it makes sense. They're on two different planets for God's mm-hmm. sake. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really the we the ending weave didn't really come together well. Like I actually, I found Loki and Thor's final conf, you know final fight actually personally satisfying if you kind of just separate that out and took it on its own. But you know every once in a while you you kind of cut back to the three humans on Earth, and they were just sort of, like, looking around. Standing there. And it's this sort of moment where we... Yeah. yeah, you have to remind them that they exist, but they don't really know what to do with them. And uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. literally vanishes. You know, yeah. I I remember wondering, why is S.H.I.E.L.D. not going back with them in the Warriors 3? You know, if, if Thor is going back up to deal with his brother, 
wouldn't it make way more sense for him to be like, all right, well, let's grab four of my Asgardian friends, and hey, you've got a lot of guys with guns around him. What about the dude with the bow? He looked useful. Why don't all of us go over there, <laughs> and we will all collectively punch Loki, and he won't really be able to stop anything from happening. Honor and duty, man. Yeah. Honor and duty. I, I'm <laughs> and, doubting that any human would be any use in Asgard. Yeah. But, so, that's, that's a point, I, so. My point is large more that the, the, the endings don't necessarily kind of weave together well, because it feels yeah. more like Okay, we're finishing this story, and then it's kind of it's kind of that Lord of the Rings stutter shop, the Return of the King stutter stop effect, where it's like, okay, we're done. Okay, now we're done with this one. Yeah, okay, now we're done with this one. You know, no, it, def- didn't, it didn't have like a cooking a satisfying, you know, sort of unified ending. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like an hour and a half in is uh, is the point where Thor regains his powers, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, where he becomes worthy of of Mjolnir. Um, and I actually, this, this is only the second, uh, or maybe third time I've seen this film. And for a while I was convinced that we, like the film was ending. It was like, okay, yeah, there's maybe another five minutes. No, there's another half hour. There's an entire fourth act. Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, Patrick, you're pointing to the, the weakness of that ending. It really, Mm. and you know, uh, Stefan, you're pointing out that it's this kind of compartmentalized feeling. It's a really abrupt break at that point in the film about 90 minutes in i think it happens every half hour that every act break is very uh, stark uh, it's i mean the act structure in this is really obvious you've got an opening uh like a prologue with them yeah in the desert and the frost then... giants and then my favorite prog band the frost giants <laughs> <laughs> yes then you have the the actual uh uh exposition um narrated by anthony hopkins i almost said anthony quinn May you rest in peace. By Anthony Bourdain, yeah. Uh, You have the opening narration of them as children, then uh, the lead-up to the fight in uh, uh, Jotunheim uh, ends the first act, then the uh, fight with... or No, the infiltration of the shield compound to get the hammer is the end of the Mm -hmm. second act, Mm -hmm. uh, fighting those guys. Then the one you referenced fighting the destroyer uh, and he gets the hammer back then fighting Loki uh, for the fourth, fourth act. Yeah. I wonder if any of that has to do with the fact that, you know, this is Kenneth Branagh we're talking about who is most well known for Shakespeare. Like he is, yeah. he is, this is a director who is maybe more well versed in traditional theater than mm-hmm. almost anybody else working today. Mm-hmm. I, th- yeah. I think that, and particularly in like adaptations, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, like yeah, yeah. we're like his cinematic and directed is is like yeah. primarily adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting question about you know what what effect that might have on the, <laughs> the act structure. Of this film. Well, I, but anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I I, th- I think the act structure point is is fair there. And when we talk about Branagh as the director, um, it, it maybe this was I'm sure it was deliberate to some extent. I'm not sure how fully deliberate it was. The stuff, the high fantasy stuff, where they're on Asgard and. You know, everyone's being fun, and Thor's throwing his hammer around, and everyone's got crazy helmets and turning blue and shit. <laughs> um, like, that felt very comfortable. Like, Branagh mm-hmm. felt like he was in his comfort zone there, and uh, I thought the... Like, basically, any scene where Anthony Hopkins got yelled at or yelled at somebody um, <laughs> felt, <laughs> felt very natural. Uh, but as soon, as soon as it got to Earth... Um, yeah. I feel like he, he fell out of that comfort zone and suddenly it became 
uh, kind of romance novel kind of sitcom-y. Kat Dennings is there making jokes. Um, <laughs> and, and, like, Branagh, I don't think Branagh was as comfortable with that side of the film. And I think it shows. I think the, the script itself is not that comfortable with that side of the film because it there are deliberate steps to characterize the Asgardians. Uh, there are scenes of them talking to each other, sharing memories. So, I mean, they're telling us what they're like, but uh, we see a lot of their behavior too. And we get no information on anyone on Earth. We don't know how long she's been tracking these things. We don't know where they're from in the world. We don't know what organization they're with. We don't know where they get their money. Uh, we don't know what any of their jobs are. Yeah, uh, They are just people in a desert, and then things happen to them. Uh, but none of them have characterization. None of them have background. Uh, I would say the one, the human we get the most um, sort of read on, at least in terms of his history, is Eric Selvig. Mm-hmm. Well, he uh, was in because... Hulk, wasn't he? No, no. No, he was not in Hulk. He, oh, okay, he does yeah. reference in having known Hulk. The, the gamma scientist he's talking about is Bruce Banner. Um, yeah. Actually, if you go back and watch the Avengers, as we will, mm-hmm. um, you, actually, you actually see Bruce react to the nut Selvig has been kidnapped. Um, okay. He's in the background. You can barely see him, yeah. but it's because Eric and Bruce have actually worked together. Okay. Yeah, I thought that he'd been referenced in Incredible Hulk, but I well, he, forgot to go back and check before we. He, he gets podcast. gets a little more, I think, to do, uh, and part of that is I think uh, because he's Stellan Skarsgård um, as much as anything else. But I I, <laughs> I agree, and I, I think about the first act when they go to Jotunheim, and I, I really noticed this time when they went there and had that fight scene with the Frost Giants. Uh, there is, and I, th- I think it was a very well-done fight scene, and it communicated an enormous amount of information about all of these characters and the relationships they have together. It showed what? Yes. It showed that all of them were badasses. It showed that all of them had particular powers or skills or attitudes toward their life and their work that came into play later. Uh, you got the plot information about Loki um, not being what he seems. You got the uh, plot point of giving Odin a reason to banish Thor. You have the setup of the coming war that's going to happen, so the action of the film flows out of Thor's um, Thor's imp- uh, impertinence rather than just being a thing he has to react to. A lot of information gets communicated there very, very quickly. Uh, and then when we get to Earth, like, what's the communication that we, uh, what's the information we get? Like, they have a they have an RV. That, that's the communication we get. <laughs> yeah, and she's studying, and I get the feeling he was her professor, but they don't work together anymore. Uh, but maybe they're working together just for this, and they have an intern, but no one wanted to be the intern. And that's about it. Yeah. Our, yeah, I mean, our primary in like character investment in in basically the middle hour of the film, you know, mm-hmm. between the end of the first act and the beginning of the fourth act, is in Thor himself. Really, I mean, well, is is in this this fish out of water kind of story. Like for me, that was the most like entertaining and compelling part of that plot. It should um, be. I mean, the movie's named after him, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> certainly. But I, I take your. Um, but but like in in sort of completing that thought, mm-hmm. the 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 basically the romance subplot of that larger kind of middle hour mm-hmm. um, stack of plot, if you will, um, just doesn't really like work. Like I, maybe it's just me personally. I'm not terribly invested 
no. by the time that hour is over in uh, in Jane and Thor's relation, or um, yeah, in uh, uh, Jane I, and Thor's relationship. Yeah. So I, I I don't know if you guys had had other opinions there, but there's just something about it doesn't necessarily work. Yeah, Lillian noted that if you think about it, this movie functionally has three protagonists: Thor. Loki, because this movie is also about how Loki goes from yeah. who he was at the beginning of the movie to the man he is when Avengers hits, because yeah. they're not the same person. And Jane, yeah. problem is you're trying to juggle three protagonists and a butt-ton of world-building yeah. for Marvel. And by definition, one of those protagonists is going to get the short shrift. And it seems like Jane was the one who got it, because the thing that struck me was it wasn't necessarily that... I, I, I mean... The Thor Jane relationship, there were there were some sparks of it that I thought were actually interesting. I wasn't massively invested into it. I was more invested in the idea of Jane as the sort of scientist who kind of pushes beyond what is probably safe. Like one of my favorite mm-hmm. things that I, I will say this: I love the bit at the beginning where like they've hit him. He's literally been hit by a car, and Jane goes, "Yeah, he's fine. He's fine. We don't need to take him to the hospital." And then <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, "No, we do." He goes you can do it. I'm going to stay here and do that. And I'm like, that was actually a pretty good character building moment. <laughs> well, she's not concerned with the hunky man. Uh, oh, she yeah. only is concerned about her science. She's a lady science. Uh, I, I completely agree with you. And actually one of the, one of, I feel the biggest missteps in this movie is starting out with Jane and uh, Selwig yeah. and Kat Dennings. That's an interesting point. Why do we why do we need to start in Medias Res there? Because they're it's Earth, so they think that we uh we want to uh, have I guess we want to get to space from Earth, and I think it would be much better if we started on Thor in the whirlwind. He's just landed, and then he gets hit by a van, and then you, you cut to mm. what happened before. Or, or just but, just start with the uh, the prologue talking about Jotunheim, like set the film up like fully commit to the idea of the film as a high fantasy film and then have that twist at the one at the uh, half hour mark where you are thrown out of that and go through that as he goes through it. Yeah. Here's a, here's a a detail question that I'm curious about. She has been tracking these uh, cosmic events or this uh, solar wind, whatever is happening, this this desert science. Science, Um, science. (laughs) So much fake science in this movie. (laughs) She says that this event has, uh, the last uh, 17 times have occurred on schedule at regular intervals. So she's been tracking this thing long enough to know, uh, to notice the pattern, to predict it, and to know what part of the world to be in. I don't think that they came to this and discovered this thing. I think that she discovered this thing and then came to New Mexico. Uh, mm. But what were the previous 17 iterations of en- energetic anomaly? Was this... I, at first I thought it was the the like gearing up of the bridge uh, and that time moves differently on the two worlds. Uh, like it, She's noticed, you know, days apart... Uh, uh, the the revolutions of mm-hmm. the uh, Rainbow Bridge as it prepares, but then the the gap between Thor landing and the hammer landing is pretty much the same on Earth that it is for being thrown from the other end. Mm. So I don't know, like was uh, I, I'm I'm going to go with Marvel's go to explanation for things like this. Okay. It was the Cree, and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the Cree. Um. Uh, no, it's it's a, it's a good point. Like, there's 
it's a line that's just kind of thrown away. And in sort of other pieces of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I'm specifically thinking of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, series, we do get more information about Asgardians coming and going and these things happening. Um, mm. But, yeah, it... I don't know. I, I think that it, it kind of connects back to one of the one of the things I kind of find I think maybe, that I think maybe is kind of at the heart of some of the problems with Jane in this movie. Um, and just to clarify, I don't. I actually am okay with her in this movie. I think it's in dark where we start to seriously get into problems. But that's I'm looking into the future now. Um, a lot of her, I can do that. Yeah. A lot of her science. <laughs> oftentimes feel like how to say this it feels like they are not empowering her own scientific quest outside, oh, yeah. outside of context of thor if that makes sense like it's not precise. and and don't get me wrong thor is an extraterrestrial that is a huge scientific finding hmm. but at the same time i i kind of wanted to see some some more indication that, you know the, her science quest was and it was seeing. I want to see something somehow that it is not in relationship to what Thor. Well, is here, doing. here's the thing: like yeah. you, you, you don't establish for her any real stake in this. The easiest way to do this, and this is like an easy trope to throw out in films and romance novels, probably, probably, is uh, during that sensitive scene where he's laying out the mysteries of the tree of life in the universe to her. She can just say, like, you know, my dad got sucked up into a rainbow bridge when I was a little kid, and I've been trying to <laughs> Well, I mean... God, that would be amazing. Yeah. That, would be, that would be so much better than the nothing that we get, because yeah. I... I agree, Patrick, that there should be three protagonists, but I don't think that she really counts because I can't see her as anything more than set dressing in this movie for Thor's, like, destiny to be in love with some woman from Midgard. And I, I will, uh, although they never call Earth Midgard in the film, I don't think. No. I'm not sure. I, I will go I out on a limb. I will go out on a limb also and say that it is not helped by the fact that this is, and I am counting the prequels, maybe the worst performance Natalie Portman has ever given in anything. Oh, I yeah, she's I agree with that. I don't know. The line reading on Oh My God is the worst line delivery oh, yeah. okay. in the film, and maybe but in all That is a pretty bad I'd chalk that up to editing. Maybe. But I think that it's, it's a script problem for her, because neither she nor Kat Dennings nor even Selwig are given anything to really talk about. They're just delivering information and reacting to Thor. Well, None of them have... Go ahead. I was going to say, the closest we get to seeing some idea of stakes with her is when um, Phil Coulson shows up and steals her research. And just as a side note, as the world's largest Phil Coulson fan, I actually enjoyed that bit because it is a very big, interesting switch because there's someone taking a character we've seen as an ally mm -hmm. for the last two movies, and then all of a sudden he's he's kind of acting antagonistic. He's basically mm -hmm. doing the full men in black, yeah. you know, we're taking all your crap and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, I mean, we're um, seeing the other side of what S.H.I.E.L.D. is. You know, exactly. The Hydra um, side. And, and, yes. This is also where he introduced Sitwell, who yeah. will later be Hydra. Um, but what I liked about that is, like, that's the moment we start to understand, like, you know, these sort of stakes as academic that she has. You know, because the idea is, you know, one idea might be that, you know, she, if you want to give her stakes, is that, you know, she's, what she's proposing is a bonkers theory. Like, now she happens to be right. <laughs> there are Einstein-Rosen wormholes that aliens are trapping through. But sounds so fake. Yeah, it sound, but it sounds bonkers. Yeah. And, 
And so there's an idea that she should be like, I would have loved to have seen a scene where she tries to, you know, she can gets laughed out of the community, out of the community. Um, mm. You know, there's, there's kind of an idea of someone who's desperate to prove herself because she's trying to, and that's, and that's why she can't get any interns because no intern wants to go near this completely crazy research. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a, a very viable option. Uh, I mean, I think better than nothing that we get. (laughs) Well, I mean, certainly, like, I I, I think there are there are other relationships in this film that that are handled, you know, fairly well. And I mean, I think the most obvious example is between uh, Thor and Loki. Yeah, we barely talked about, but also, yeah, but also (laughs) between, (laughs) but also between, you know, Thor and Loki and their father. Um, I think I actually think the family drama aspect of this, apart from the like pretty. Short shrift Rene Russo's kid. Rene Russo. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about underwritten. You know, yeah. Um, I, I, apart from that, I, I actually think the family drama is, is, is pretty well uh, done here. I mean, oh, yeah. that, for me at least, the, the stakes of the relationships there are so much more meaty. Um, you know, and, and it, it really does help that um, in. Um, Tom Hiddleston and Hemsworth and Anthony Hopkins. You have three really like fantastic actors. Um, You know, I think, I think Hemsworth's performance here, yes, it's very kind of broad and um, you know, like lines like you're an old man and a fool. Um, (laughs) Tony Stark. Easy to make fun of of and kind of like satirize if you want to, but it's exactly what the film needs. Like, this yeah. is exactly the performance that we needed of Thor in this film. Yeah. Um, and Particularly think all, beginning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think all three of them really like, pulled off their respective characters. Yeah. Lillian put it this way, is that when you when this kind of film especially, but especially when it's directed by Ken Frana, you need an actor who's going to commit 1,000%. Yeah. And <laughs> Chris Hemsworth and Tom Middleton and all those other people are committing like 2,000%, like that bit where he's like wrestling in the hospital and then like gets stabbed in the butt and like, like <laughs> yeah. slings down. He is committing to that yeah. part. When yeah. he wakes up in a hospital room that does not exist anywhere, it, it's an intake room. <laughs> there are like 13 people in there doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's in a small uh, New Mexico town. There's not much going on. Yeah, I, I, I think that all three of those guys are, are given a lot to do and they do what they're given very well, but I still don't find Thor or Loki to be particularly compelling in this movie, and it might just be in comparison to Avengers mm-hmm. and Dark World, uh, because oh. there you can't not wa- you can't not love watching Loki in Avengers. But here, I feel like I I okay. So I spent a lot of the time trying to figure out exactly when Loki was lying and to whom he is lying in that scene mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, what level of what he's saying is lying. Uh, but I still, I don't know. I just didn't find any of them particularly interesting. And I was very confused about Loki's motivation for his second plot. The one that starts when uh, his father goes into Odin's sleep uh, and he realizes that he can become the king now. Uh, I, I, it's funny. I, I felt that same way when I first saw the film. When I rewatched it, it made way more sense to me because I had the power of hindsight. Mm-hmm. And it did very much feel like 
a bit like a, it was very much akin to sort of this is a Kenneth Branagh prestige film or a uh, Shakespearean adaptation in that way. But you know, because what I interpret as you know, the first time he's just kind of dicking around with his brother, mm-hmm. and then I think he is legitimately quite frightened by what he sees Thor do on Jotunheim. Yeah, because like to me, I've always interpreted one of Loki's biggest weaknesses is his insecurity, and he because he's a very insecure person. And he, he's convinced he's smarter than everybody else, but part of that comes from, you know, deep insecurity. He feels like, I should be in charge because I know what I'm doing. It's not that he hate, you know, he's not that he even wishes ill on Thor tornadoes at the end of the movies. He legitimately thinks Thor should not be in charge. He's going to get everybody killed. I should oh, yeah. be in charge because I know I, what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, I, I think that the, the motivation for his first prank or his first plot is uh, that he explains that fairly well. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right that... Um, he, if he didn't, uh, if he didn't think that he was teaching lesson, uh, teaching Thor a lesson before he tricked him to go to Jotunheim, what he saw there made him very confident about having done that, mm-hmm. and also revealing to Odin that Thor was not ready. I think then he felt good about it. Uh, I think that before they left, his motivation was just to prank him and to ruin his big day. But then, after that. Um, prank gets out of spirals out of control and Thor gets exiled uh, then uh, he doesn't know what to do with himself Odin has his heart attack or whatever passes out in front of him uh, after he Odin learns sleep. That, yeah. yeah Odin sleep um, and he's just told Loki that he's not actually a son uh, that Loki's you know, been questioning what the heck is going on with me uh, and that kind of breaks his world and then he becomes king but then he wants to destroy Jotunheim and he also kills his real father, but without ever telling his real father that he's his son. Uh, and just his motivation for destroying his home planet, uh, other than maybe that he's trying to hide the fact that he feels like he's a monster. Uh, I can say my interpretation. Okay. Uh, it's just, this is just my interpretation. Was that um, the reason he did that was because he knew that war was coming, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Thor... Thor had basically dropped a basically dropped a first strike onto Jotunheim, and there was going to be a nice big intergalactic war. And I think what he thought he, he thought he was doing the right thing because he thought by you know because Loki Loki doesn't operate you know he you know Stefan pointed this out earlier, and I think he's right. I love that opening fight on Jotunheim because I'm a I I have as of late as a writer come to think that, that you can tell a lot about a character by how they fight. You know, an action sequence doesn't necessarily just have to be, you know, a big spectacle. You can you can explain a person's personality by seeing how they choose to fight. Mm-hmm. And when we watch that scene, we see Thor is just literally just standing in the middle of everything and just wailing on everyone around him. Loki, you know, has throwing knives. Loki acts trickly. Ah, um, is it Loki me? Is very... is it, oh, it's not me. I'm just a ghost. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, Loki does not get tries not to get into head on conflicts. Um, but because I think what he thought he was doing was that he was basically, he was killing the enemy's leader and he's just been sort of destroying the entire planet. And now we're all safe. And I've stopped the war, the war that you started. I am cleaned up your mess I think and father I, will see how I did this and he'll be proud of me. I think that what, um, I, makes, I, I'm to some degree I'm with Patrick and I think that what makes it interesting and, and this is particularly with, within the MCU context and 
certainly to this point and generally later as well. I mean, Loki is kind of the first really interesting villain that we've gotten and arguably mm-hmm. one of the last interesting villains we've gotten so far. Um <laughs> And I think what I liked about the performance in this film and what I liked about that story is I don't believe that at the beginning of the film, Loki had this big grand plot set up. Throughout the film, you see him developing it, and it's largely reacting, and it's reacting from a place of his own insecurities and his own fears. Mm -hmm. And I think, Patrick, you you did a good job, or maybe it was you, identifying him as – not as the antagonist of the film, but as one of the protagonists. Um, because the story is very much his journey to how he becomes that that character that we see in the Avengers at the end. And I believe each step of the journey. And when he is hanging there off the bridge at the end, yelling at Odin that, you know, I could have saved us, I could have done it, I could have saved all of us, and Odin tells him no. You, you can see, like, that was genuinely crushing to him just absolutely devastating and that was like the culmination of his journey um and i i found and i made notes of this as i was going i found that journey much more compelling than i found thor's journey which was just really a standard you know he's arrogant he's humbled and now he's uh uh, ready to be a king oh i think one of the reasons it works in a lot of ways is that thor had just as much a chance of turning into Loki in a way if circumstances had been different because you know if you think about what he did at the beginning of the film he fucked up you know he he basically you know just because of his own petty ego drags his friends on an authorized mission gets one of them stabbed through the chest by a giant icicle and starts an intergalactic war like you kind nothing they haven't been through before you, know, yeah, you, yeah. you kind of see why Odin is a little pissed off at him yeah um, and so I yeah. think because I, I, I agree with Stefan, like Thor, I think Thor's journey is pretty standard. Um, I think it, it works because Chris Hem, because there's nothing wrong with a good simple story well told, because Chris Hemsworth sells the hell out of it. Um, but I think the reason that sort of these two narratives work together is that I always look at Thor and Loki as, you know, they really are brothers in a lot of ways, and you can see a lot of what are Odin's faults in both of them. And there is kind of like a but for the grace of God go I kind of thing with both of them going on, looking at the other. Yeah. You know, if, if, if you know circumstances have been slightly different, well, I don't know. I feel like they each have very distinct. I feel like they each have very distinct personalities, and Loki is the one who's willing to deceive people, and Thor is the one who is worthy of using Mjolnir. After a while, uh, well, yeah. yes, uh, yeah. uh but. He, uh, hold on, what was I just about to say? Um, that, yeah, I, I absolutely believe that Loki did not intend to become king, that that was just a, a random event, uh, and the result of, um, Thor's, you know, mm-hmm. he didn't realize how far he was pushing Thor when he was manipulating him to go mm-hmm. and attack this other realm or to defy his father. Um, and I think he was just trying to get Thor to defy his, defy his father to, prove that he wasn't worthy of the, the throne uh, and to prove his own keen intelligence, as uh, uh, Patrick, you said, he does believe he's smarter than everyone else. But then when he finds out that he's not the real son, and I don't think he ever tells Thor this, does he? Does he? he says, you're not my brother, but he doesn't explain what that means. And Thor's no. like, you're crazy, this is madness, because Thor literally has no idea what he's talking about. He hasn't seen 
Loki use any of these frost giant powers. He he doesn't know the the story. Um, Thor sees him still as his brother there at the end, uh, mm-hmm. but Loki doesn't want him to know, I guess. And so I assume that must be his motivation that he's trying to hide the fact that he is actually a frost giant because he's a, he's a self hating frost giant. I think this part. Of, <laughs> I think he is actually. I think I think one thing I like about Loki is that I don't think Loki is self aware enough to know what he's to always know why he's doing what he's doing. Um, I think that sometimes he he just sort of lashes out and doesn't understand you know, exactly why he's chosen to do something. Like he's he, tricky he, for the sake of being tricky. Um, he, he, con- he conveys a, an image of being someone who always knows what's on, who's always on top of things. I think he's lying to himself. Uh, Derek, you, you had something to say on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think that general theme of ambivalence surrounding his character, um, th- thinking about it from a kind of macro perspective of the MCU, um, I think this film did an excellent job of setting up what we'll later see with Loki where um, at one point, is it, is it in Age of Ultron where um, they have to team up basically with, with Loki? That's Dark World. That's in Dark World. Okay. Um, but, you know, in any case, this idea of Loki as um, as someone who you, you could conceivably collaborate with or who could be on your side. I mean, that's that's kind of set up here in a way that when it pays off later, like we don't automatically assume um, just as a kind of 100% proposition that, um, uh, that Loki has like malicious intent. Like we, we definitely see that he's deceptive in some way, mm-hmm. um, but that kind of ambivalence is handled in a, a very particular way that makes that later payoff actually work and not, mm-hmm. not seem like a contrivance. Mm-hmm. I buy that. Um. Uh, random aside to this, uh, Hillary pointed out that I, and I don't know if I'd never thought about this before, but that Loki isn't just the archetypal behavior of a trickster, that there's actually a look to him. He physically looks like a trickster. Mm-hmm. Uh, he looks exactly like uh, Keanu Reeves, who is the, <laughs> the greatest of all trickster villain. In, uh, in, no, he's in Much Ado About Nothing, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh plays Benedict, yeah. and Keanu Reeves plays the other guy. Don John. What's his name? Yeah, there you go. Uh, and he looks a lot like uh, Peter Baelish in Game of Thrones, that kind of gaunt, like uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, more slender, lanky uh, appearance. So basically, me. Yep. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, he looks like uh, uh, right now. You're just a little face on a screen. Yeah. Uh, but I'll take your word for it. No, he's he's got like the dark, slicked back hair. He's got the lean face. Um, it, well, yeah. there's a visual thing going on there. What's interesting yeah. about that is that you guys know how Tom Hiddleston got this part, right? Yeah. How? What? Oh no, I don't. How? He tried out for Thor. Okay. He bulked up and somehow managed to convince enough casting directors that he should play four that he got in front of <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. Now, when Kenneth Branagh saw him, he immediately saw, "No, you don't. You can't play four. Not but he immediately thought yeah. he was Loki. But he immediately <laughs> saw that he was Loki. And what's interesting is that, by all accounts, and this is not confirmed, but it's a rumor, that's what Hiddleston intended the entire time. He knew <laughs> well, that he, he was not himself good for is a trickster. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
It's like how Shannon and Elizabeth went into the audition for American Pie, but pretending to be from another country. She never used her real American accent. She used the fake accent the whole time. And it was that accent that got her cast. Uh, I mean, really, that is actually the story of her getting cast in American Pie. That's amazing. Um, wow. But I don't think, well, it's, it's kind of similar. It's basically speaking, what we, you know, it's pretty much the same. Speaking of, uh, of visual disjunctures in this film, can we talk about the candid angles and yeah. the wide-angle lenses? Yeah. Oh, the Dutch angles? Yeah. I actually know why these are in here. Because I listened to the Kenneth Branagh commentary. Oh, enlighten okay. us. Uh, I, I did, they drove me nuts. There were so many Dutch angles. Uh, <laughs> And he, he mentions in the commentary that he caught some flack for this, but he did it because when he read Thor comics, a lot of them are Dutch angles. So he was just oh, hearing this. This is fascinating to me. <laughs> this is fascinating because if we think back to our discussion of Ang Lee's Hulk. Hulk yes. Right? Uh, <laughs> and how, like, he took a lot of flack for, like, kind of maybe ham-fistedly translating comic maybe? conventions to... Uh, I mean, I don't think it was bad. I actually liked it in, uh, Hulk. Here's that was thing, one of the like, parts of the film I liked. I, I, I always have ambivalent feelings about this because I, I love it when, like, very few of the films that we've watched as part of this podcast have a terribly distinctive visual style, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe the Cormans do. <laughs> this one has a very distinct but, palette in its very, most, in its different acts. Right, it is a really dark film. It's true. Yeah, no, the, we, I, I think that's a really close the curtains point. But I mean, apart from Angley's Hulk, this is the only other film of the what what we might call the the like major releases that we've watched that has like a distinct like noticeable. Interesting, I won't say effective, but interesting visual style. Um, And I'm wondering about the tension between, like, Branagh as a director who's making these very conscious choices and kind of the stylistic impetus of the the larger MCU, right? Because there's... There's clearly things that there's there's like stylistic things that you can't that you cannot do in the MCU, right? I mean, you can't have like jump cuts, and Star you can't wipes. have like star wipes or like jarring disjunctures of uh, of uh, visuals and sound. Anything well, anything that would have been in this... an Edgar Wright film, basically. Exactly right. This uh, is <laughs> yeah. Or in that when um, we get to Ant Man, I'm wondering like, is this the limit of? what you can do stylistically to, like, stand out in an MCU um, film? I mean, I well, don't... I, it's hard to talk about that without, again, looking too far into the future. Yeah. Um, because I do have some opinions on, I think, some movies that do manage to have a very a pretty distinct visual style. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it is very obvious that Marvel has a house style, yeah. right? You know, they... You know, you, and you can even see when you watch, like, Daredevil and Jessica Jones, which are tonally... You know, light years from this, but you can you can definitely see part of the house style. Um, I think later on you find it depends on the director's ability to kind of like make that house style their own. The Russos are very good at it. Yeah. Well, there, there's, uh, I'd agree. But no, no, also like to to build on that. If we're talking about the Russos, where did the Russos come from? They were TV directors. Um, that, that's the the bound that they began working in. So maybe they're more comfortable with that. But then the additional pieces you've got um, the house style for the director's side or the cinematography where you're working with a certain color palette, you are framing shots in a certain way, you are editing in a certain way, you've got that. 
Uh, and I don't think that has a lot of variation to it. I think where you see variation is in the um, more along the production design style, because you get um, if you look at uh, say uh, Iron Man two and this and Captain America as three distinct films. Um, costuming is very different. Visual effects are very different. I mean, th- those motifs uh-huh. are different, but they are shot in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's mm-hmm. what I want to know what Derek means specifically by style, because I think camera, in, in terms of cinematography, uh, that, yes, these two stand out, but visually, uh, in other elements, the the palette and the uh, type of costuming, um, the the way that the image pops off the screen, mm. uh, the Spider-Man trilogy has a very distinct style um, that right. it, it uses uh, primary and secondary colors, I would say, in equal measure. Uh, mm. Those do. that. There's lots of, not just blues and reds for Spider-Man, but greens and, and uh, I think it has plenty of yellows. There are not many orange and purples. This, yeah. this movie, uh, color-wise, is, I would say, much more similar to uh, the Iron Man's, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah. darker. I mean, I'm I'm talking about style in like a pretty broad way, right? I mean, it's it's an aesthetics, right? I mean, it's 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 vis- primarily visual, but also audio, you know, kind of mm-hmm. aesthetics. Um, and like in a very broad sense, narrative is part of mm-hmm. aesthetics, but really, I'm talking about visuals, right? Um, and maybe it's just because it is this repeating pattern and like so many of the shots are canted yeah like i would say like at least a quarter of the shots maybe a a third or even a half of the shots are canted um and it becomes a pattern that here's the thing like it becomes a pattern but it doesn't kind of blend into the stylistic aesthetic background if that makes Mm -hmm. sense like, I noticed every single one of those cans. Yeah, the, the, such that, like, Jenny and I started, we just played a game. It's like, if the if, if the shot was canned, up, oh, canned it. Like, you, you just shouted this. The, at the, the big one was yeah. the, uh, during the Natalie Portman, oh my god one, where it starts at 145 yeah, degrees, zooms, and comes around yeah. to another one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been thinking about what you're saying about sort of Kent Branagh's style. Um, and first off, quick tangent. Quick tang- Oh my god, Asgard is pretty. I just want to get that. Yeah, very well designed. That was one of my favorite. The zoom in Asgard from Earth is probably my favorite shot of the film. The establishment, establishing the the world. Although, I would point out that Asgard is an an entirely empty city. Yes. I do not believe there's anyone here except the where they They, were. That, that, ironically, that is an, a, a very good question, and it isn't even answered until a later episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I'm not going oh. to say what it is, because that's <laughs> okay. one of the best Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. twists ever. Anyway. Like second or third season or something? First season. Yeah. Really? I'm, I'm, I've McNichol. seen it, and I don't remember. Peter McNichol, yeah. Peter McNichol's character. We can yeah. talk about it after we're done. Uh, we'll talk about it later. We'll talk about Peter. Um, no, on our, on our, our is great. Yeah. On our Peter, Peter McNichol podcast. Peter, we'll be on. Go to next. Yeah. Yeah. Asgard is great. Uh, the Bifrost, um, I think, is really cool. And the bridge. Um, I, I think even, like, canon angles aside, the the town in New Mexico, mm-hmm. I thought it was it was very interestingly designed. I mean, there, there, oh, there's really real this... Town. Yeah, well, I mean, but clearly there were, like, production design elements, like... Actually, I think it's a fake right? town. I think it's a... Uh, now I can't no, remember. it was a real town. My fr- a friend of... 
the it was shot on location. Was, was, was shot on location. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I just I thought it was a uh, a maybe it's a real town that's been used in previous films. I was thinking it was a fake town that had been used for a lot of previous films. But in, in, in any case, like the choices, you know, of how to how to frame the town and what spaces to shoot and sure. the, you know, mm-hmm. they must have constructed some yeah. like uh, they probably constructed that lab or anything else. Yeah, they probably um, didn't just climb up on top of a random old diner or whatever that place is. Yeah. That. <laughs> just like in the Rocketeer. When they... yeah. yeah, exactly. One of the things I noticed, though, about the town, whether this is in the actual town or whether this was brought in in production design, is that they emphasized all of these like um, kind of atomic age, like Googie-style... Um, kind of like mid fifties motifs, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, like in the in the signs or um, just like various other aspects of the town, like much subtler than Branagh's other stylistic choices. <laughs> but it like it, it was just a cool kind of um, kind of just a aesthetic backdrop to think about it. I mean, um, it, it just that kind of matches. imagery of of the atomic age to yeah. you know to match the image of the mushroom cloud that we get. Um, you know, near the near the end of the film, mm-hmm. it, it probably matches the the stylistic um, or the design of the backgrounds in the comics themselves from that era. Oh, yeah, because okay. I don't know if Branagh read them when he was a kid or read them as research to do this film. Uh, and I remember when it was announced that he was doing this film, that feeling like his name was going to bring some respectability Prestige. to the MCU yeah. because. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it kind of it felt kind of right that he would be directing the like space opera, yeah. uh, galactic um, uh, drama film, um, with as you said, like the high fantasy film, um, because there is a, a particular Shakespearean quality to any story that's about gods, mm-hmm. uh, even if those gods are really just superheroes in the context <laughs> of our world, now. but. Uh, uh, there, let's see, a few more points that I've been wanting to hit. Uh, the, probably my favorite moment of characterization for Thor was when he's trying to convince his friends to go to Jotunheim, and one of them says, this isn't some, you know, jaunt to Earth so you can show off being a thunder god or something. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, I, that's what the other realms are for these guys. That they're, you know, the king's children who get to go and play in whatever countryside area they want. So they have, I guess they don't go fight in Jotunheim because it's forbidden to go there, but they have the other realms, I guess, where that he mentions, you know, where they mm-hmm. charged into these battles together. But Earth is where Thor goes to pick up chicks and show off his hammer. <laughs> <laughs> and if you pay attention, when he's in the car with, and Natalie Portman is driving him to the site to get his hammer back, that is probably the moment when they look the most natural together. And I was watching that scene for the second time, and I was like, oh my god, this is where Thor is in his element right now. He has none of his powers, but he is just riding along with a babe, uh, doing his thing. (laughs) He's he's talking her up, uh, he's being very charming, uh, and they actually have some chemistry in that scene. and, but it's also the the moment when she is like, she's being very science oriented and needs to know what this mystery is, uh, 
and he's going to help her get her stuff back. What I, what I wrote um, down but, in that scene was that it felt like um, he was the charming but not too bright football player, and she was the straight-A student who'd been assigned to tutor him, and he's trying to convince her to do his homework for him. Exactly. <laughs> Scientist lady and hunky guy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we haven't talked about, uh, about Hawkeye. Yeah. I was actually about to bring up. one scene, right? Of Hawkeye. What a scene it was. <laughs> what, Maybe. but that opening camera shot of him going for the gun is the worst shot in this entire film. There's, no, one, there's no way anyone would grab a gun like that, but when he did transition and grab the bow and I saw it in theaters, I actually cried out. I was like, yes! I was so excited about <laughs> it because I knew exactly who it was. He would never have reached for the gun at all. No. He, he's not a professional trained sniper, and the, the bow and arrow is something that he uses on the weekend that he's been practicing with, and now it's his moment to shine. <laughs> like, he's, he's not just unveiling this. This is his thing. He's probably never touched that sniper rifle before. I, I, I want to actually talk about S.H.I.E.L.D. a bit, too, um, because S.H.I.E.L.D. has always been near and dear to my heart. And uh, this actually cr- gets back to something I was going to mention on earlier, is that S.H.I.E.L.D. is used very differently in this movie than in previous films, because, you know, before they are Tony Stark's... They're always Tony... They're, they're Tony's allies in that movie. Um, but when we hit, you know, Thor, you know, until near the end, they're in an antagonistic role. And I know for... I can tell you that Coulson was not always intended to be um, the the head of that particular operation. He was brought in, uh, I think, in, an, in a later draft, because the writers really liked... Clark you just know everything in the world that there is to know about Phil Coulson, don't you? I'm not saying I don't have. I'm not saying I have a Phil Coulson apron that I wear when I cook, but I do. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, I, I think it is a very in, it's very useful for later setup, especially for uh, Winter Soldier to to show what it looks like when you know Shield just kind of rolls in out of nowhere, says we'll take it from here, and shoves you to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I did notice also is that, uh, you know, because we were talking about Kenneth Branagh leaving his mark, there was one shot in particular that, that I uh, noticed re- was repeated several times, but with three different characters. And it's sort of this side-on shot that's slightly from below, and it's very it's a very theatrical shot. It's a very sort of um, period piece kind of shot. And you see Anthony Hopkins gets it. Calm Fiore, who's the yeah, actor Balfi. who plays them. Balfi. The Laufey, the king of the ice giants. And uh, Phil Coulson gets it. And it, Lillian described it as it's, it's kind of the regal shot. It's the sort of shot of, like, power. Um, and that, you know, it, and you, you can also see that in a, in a slight bit, because Hawkeye is kind of like a weird cameo moment. But, you know, that the reason that kind of works is that, like, Phil is literally looking down on Thor from on high and watching him, like, crawl in the mud. And he literally has the power to kill Thor at any moment and then chooses not to. And so in that way, there is kind of like a house style because that, to me, is a very Kenneth Branagh kind of, you know, thing to do. Like, he's taking this concept of monarchy and nobility and applying it on top of a giant, you know, men in black government conspiracy. He's applying authority, essentially, through the through the framing of the shot. Uh. Authority? Yeah. Authority, yes. Um, So I have a question. Uh, And we could call this a little game, a little subsection of our podcast called Is It Racist That? (laughs) (laughs) It's not what you think, actually. I am very afraid. Am I racist because it bothers me 
If you ask that question, the answer is probably yes. <laughs> well, well, go on. Well, that racism has like sixteen different different definitions, and we treat it like it's a word that has one definition. Oh, I want to hear your racist I am, thing. Okay, it bothers me that the actor playing Hogan sounds Asian. Not that he is. Not that he looks different than the the uh, the other uh, Asgardians. Mm. But that he sounds drastically different on planet. First of all, the actors. Hogan is not Asgardian. Okay. He is actually from a different realm than. Oh, he's not from one of the other nine realms. Yeah, this gets explained. They don't actually explain this at all in the final cut of Thor, but he they do. It is. It's in the beginning of the dark of Thor: The Dark World. You actually visit where Hogan is from. I had forgotten that. So you know that's that. Yes, I see what you mean in that. Like, if you if it was just that Asgard was. Asgardians aren't necessarily white. There are all sorts of colors. It would be weird yeah. that he had an accent if he grew yeah, up with them. Yeah, if there was but a he, guy from this planet that spoke differently. Yeah, um, but he's, he's not from around there. I, okay, he's from somewhere else. I, I'm going to say no for that reason. I'm also going to say no because the actor himself is Japanese, like from Japan. So the other, yeah, the other option is to dub him, which would be which more well, I mean, worse. But, I mean, uh, the actor who played Spike uh, is James Marsters is American. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, Hugo Laurie is British. Hugo Laurie? Well, Wait, what's his name? Hugo Laurie. <laughs> Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie. Sorry. I was thinking of Hugo Sorry. Weaving. But, who's no, no, no. The, the, the implication, the implication is uh, the, the, the actor, uh, Taranobu Set, uh, Seto Sato, uh, English is not his first language. Yes. Mm. Uh, and and okay, act, certain right. accents are easier to do than others, and certain certain actors are better and worse at accent work. Like Keanu Reeves is not a terrible actor. Second time, actually act. second time. But you give him an act. But you give Keanu Reeves an accent, and I, everything goes to hell. Incidentally, uh, Tadanobu Asanu uh, is uh, probably his most famous film is uh, Ichi the Killer. Oh. Um, yeah. So the anyone anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, take an evening where <laughs> you where where you don't have anything else to do and watch Ichi the Killer. Uh, and and just prepare yourself. You have a very strong spirit. Just, do a double feature of Ichi right. the Killer and Audition. Yeah. Or don't. Really, just don't do that. Yeah, you could also skip it and, and continue to enjoy your life. <laughs> then watch nothing but Disney cartoons to purge your mind. Yes. I have another question about Asgard and uh, these nine realms. So, is it racist? <laughs> it is. I don't believe it's racist. <laughs> so there are nine realms, including Asgard, Jotunheim, and Midgard, Earth, right? So there are mm-hmm. six other realms. Mm-hmm. But we... So the entire galaxy, right? right? There are these nine planets that they go to, the one that they're on, and then eight more planets. Maybe it's just like... Um, do- uh, at a certain point in time, people in Europe thought that that was the entire world. Like, maybe they just haven't charted the stars as much as they think they have. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think it's sort of like the Star Wars universe in that the the reachable galaxy is effectively the entire universe. Like, these are these are the planets that they have Bifrost links to, and they yeah. can't get anywhere else. Well, I mean, we, we, we can see that they go to where the Collector is in the second Thor okay. film. Um, yeah. and in, it, it does seem like, you know, the, it, it, when it does seem like other aliens know who the Asgardians are. I mean, I like, I like the idea that like, 
you know, the nine rooms are like the nine places they have easy access to, and they can get the other to the other places. It's just, it's kind of like, you know, these are the nine realms that we kind of recognize as being part of our, you know, authority. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, everything else is kind of outside of it. I can tell you that in the comics, it's different and weird and involves magic and the land of the dead, and we do not have the time to even well, do and the, okay. But it's like yeah, they, they spent all their... They spent all their bitcoins on that armor and helmets and stuff instead of spaceships. And so, That's another question yeah. I have, actually. That, there we go. That was my next question, uh, was do the Asgardians have spaceships? Uh, and, but, Derek, when you said Star Wars Universe, you didn't mean Stargate, did you? No, I meant Star okay. Wars, because okay. we'll have that conversation later. <laughs> uh, because it seems like Stargate is a more that appropriate is, metaphor, because... That is- uh, actually, uh, Star Wars is, is an appropriate game. metaphor for reasons that we don't need to go into right now. That is now. too nerdy even for this podcast. Uh, Star Wars? <laughs> are you sure you didn't mean Star Gate? <laughs> I have another Asgard question. Are you sure you did not mean Babylon 5? <laughs> Speaking of James uh, So Odin pulls those plates off of Thor's chest, mm. but they're like magnetic Knobs. plates. And he says, uh, like, these, you're not worthy of these realms as he's pulling these, like, rounded discs off of him. So is each one of those discs supposed to be, like, he has a power or he has powers on one uh, of these particular realms? Is a disc a realm or is it one of his powers? Like I just what assumed is- they were holding his cape up <laughs> but and that he was being metaphorical when he took it off. Um, I mean, it, it, I don't. It's possible that you know the the discs were part of his literal power. I just interpreted it as sort of like this is a ceremonial sort of defrocking. Yeah, kind of. And a, that yeah. the, the depowering was when he right, and the depowering is when he like literally like blasted him onto the world. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just curious because it seems like Odin has the the same discs on him. And there's like a there's like a light that happens when he pulls the disc off. So I thought there might be like a specific comic book mythology to this part Not of his costume. Oh, why wouldn't okay. there be though? They honestly, just... uh, remember we should we should the I will actually also say this. You know, remember this is Jack Kirby we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed that I could see a lot of Jack Kirby in the uh, in Asgard's designs. Uh-huh. Um. Oh, to, yeah, and uh, Brano actually mentioned that in the commentary. He specifically said, like, that they stuck to the, the Kirby uh, uh, mm-hmm. designs for a lot of the shapes of the buildings and stuff for Asgard. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Uh, uh, I, right. uh, D- Derek, 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 go ahead, douche. Uh, douche, go! Uh, uh, I love the Excalibur hammer scene in the desert uh, with Stan Lee. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of the best, like, sort of comic relief moments. And I love it, especially in light of uh, the Avengers Excalibur uh, <laughs> hammer of Thor scene in Age of Ultron. Yeah. Although somehow, yeah. somehow the least believable thing for me in this movie is that Stan Lee would own a pickup. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so, are we assuming now that he is playing himself in this in this scene? I always assume yeah. he plays himself. He's a globetrotter. Yeah. I don't know. Stanley still works a full forty-hour work week, I believe. Uh, I would not be surprised if he's the. I mean, he's a very folksy kind of guy. Yeah. I wouldn't. You, it wouldn't surprise me if someone told me that Stanley has lived in the same house his entire life. Uh, I, or that he has been driving the same pickup truck for thirty years. I, think I don't he, know. He w- Although he does he, live in New York. When he drank that incredible Los Hulk Angeles. juice, when he drank oh, that incredible God. Hulk juice, maybe it like scrambled his brain. And when yeah. he woke up from his coma, he said, "I think I should buy a pickup." <laughs> <laughs> maybe he woke up 
uh, in another country the same way that uh, Hulk yeah. does. Bruce Banner. Yeah. Bruce Banner. There we go. Hulk. I know that Stan Incredible. can't drive anymore. His eyesight's gotten too bad. He can't read either. Oh, that's a shame. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of sad, actually. Yeah. Um, two uh, way to really two bring small things that... Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, everyone. Go, go ahead, Derek. Two small things that, that amused me... Um, the, the fact that it, at one point Thor refers to Phil Coulson as son of coal. Yes. <laughs> that is my favorite line That's the in the entire line. Marvel universe. <laughs> um, also, the um, the way that Stellan Skarsgård orders at the bar, two boiler makers, please. <laughs> I just, something about uh, his character, like, Knowing what a boiler, not knowing what a boiler maker is, but like ordering it actively at a bar, yeah. I find that incredibly amusing and entertaining. I, yeah, North, I think northern. I love that entire that, sequence. Does it say northern? Who's going ahead? God, I love that we're all spread <laughs> spread out across the country. So every it went, there are four of us trying to have a conversation with a cell phone delay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll fix it in post. <laughs> no, you won't. It's true. <laughs> um, no, I love the uh, everything about Stellan uh, Skarsgård and like that build up in the second half of the movie where he's starting to believe that Thor is Thor. First, I love his excuses to get Thor out of Shield's control. Ah, he's on steroids. Oh, he's yeah. a fitness nut. <laughs> then, because yeah. they don't buy it at all, but it still works. Yeah. All he he could have gone there and said, Noah, I. I saw a guy come in here earlier, and I was wondering if I could borrow that stranger. And they would be like, I, I want to know where this goes. <laughs> Except in that version, he's played by Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> no! And Bob Scratch, Bob Scratch Goldfart! <laughs> As Loki. Um, no, but I... I, uh, do you I think- love that after they go drinking... That when uh, he brings uh, Stellan Skarsgård to uh, Natalie Portman's trailer, um, or their character names, uh, insert here. No, no. Uh, he's, she asks him how he's doing, and w- his response feels very canned to me, like saying, we painted the town red. But what he says yeah. is, uh, he drank, he fought, he made his ancestors proud. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think I, I, one thing that really I found very amusing the first time you see Stellan Skarsgård next to Thor er, is he looks a lot like Stellan Skarsgård's son. Oh, <laughs> because his his son is Eric the Viking of True Blood fame, and oh, Eric the Viking, yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah and right. yeah, and basically it's irony. It's like sort of like Stellan just like yeah, no. I have made four children like you. I know many people like you. I'm I come qual- from like yeah, I'm qualified to play a father figure. <laughs> well, what did you know those stories from his youth? Isn't there something about like in in Iceland, um, the the entire population is uh, can be traced back to like a group of like six settlers or something? Oh, I believe. I think it. I read that somewhere. Hmm. Apparently, ancient Icelandic is the same as contemporary Icelandic. And anyone in Iceland who picks up one of their ancient texts can read it uh, even more closely than we read, you know, Shakespeare. This has been Iceland. Yeah. <laughs> the Iceland Minute yeah. on Cinema Excelsior. Everything, everything I know about Iceland comes from the second Mighty Ducks movie. 
where they were the villainous <laughs> hockey team, which uh, basically boils down to a rhyme that a, an Icelandic woman says to Emilio Estevez's uh, Gordon Bombay, which is that Greenland is full of ice, but Iceland is very nice. <laughs> so... This is in the ice yeah. minute and a half. <laughs> yes. Um, the more you know. Uh, I really liked, even when Thor has been robbed of Mjolnir in a way and like isn't invulnerable, it doesn't have all the powers and stuff. Uh, he's still a thunder god. That he still has the actual thunder god power. Metabolism and calls it down on the shield. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, that even under their like Asgardian costumes and accoutrements. Uh, presumably, each of these characters is still a god in some way, mm-hmm. um, and I, don't know, I just thought that was cool that they didn't show that off. Mm-hmm. You know, he could have busted that power out at any time. It's not to, not going to do any good except in this one situation where it's going to lead up to uh, a fight with a big tall dude in the mud. There is one. That was great. There, I love that big tall dude. There is one. There is one thing that we haven't mentioned. We have been talking for about an hour and a half, and I feel like we're starting to wind down. But I want to. Uh, I want to say because we haven't mentioned this. No one. Got to no, no one has mentioned uh, Idris Elba at all. The, I, by the way, Time Doll's frozen yellow cat eye is the <laughs> creepiest thing in this entire film. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, one thing that struck me when I was watching the end credits is um, how many people who would later become on to become really big deals were in this film, but were not at this point like really big mm. deals. Mm. Uh, because this is like one of Josh Dallas's early films. He would later go on to be have like a starring cast role on a ma- on a major network show. Um, Idris Elba had not done a lot of American stuff. He was mostly well known for his British work. Yeah, he was in the, uh, wire. In the wire. He everyone, everyone knows the him wire. for Idris Elba. That's what everyone knows him for. <laughs> no one's sitting around like wire. ah yes, um, Idris Elba of Luther fame. <laughs> okay, anyone who knows who he is, he's in the wire. But the wire didn't have that that much play until later. But, um, this was 2011. No, I mean, like, 2011 was it? The Wire was incredibly well established at this point. <laughs> well established, but not really well viewed. It was I done. Mean, it's, it it's, was finished. I had already taken a course on uh, it. Ste- <laughs> yeah, Stefan's biased because he took a course on this before he graduated from college in 2009. So he's already seen all of it and been exposed to it I can, in academic. I can see the point. I don't want to have this argument. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, think, I think The Wire may have already been listed as something that white people like on the blog. <laughs> so, not an argument. Development. Um, but, I mean, Idris, he's not, he doesn't, I mean, Rene Russo has probably got the, the, if anybody who got the short end of this stick, it's Rene Russo. Yeah, she was in she's, Major League. She should have had a way bigger part. And uh, Thomas Crown Affair, the new one, naked in that, I think. Anyone? Anyone see the new Thomas Crown Affair with Pierce Brosnan? Many I knew I mean like ago, ten years ago. Yeah, you mean the one showed it to me, and <laughs> and uh, the Lethal's weapon. Yep. Wait. Yeah, your 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 gets. Shorty. I'm going to allow that. Yeah. I mean, Idris is great in this. He just doesn't have a lot to do. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward role. Yeah. Um. I mean, Idris is great in pretty much any. I will watch Idris Elba. Do almost anything. You're gonna go. If you wa- told me Idris Elba was going to teach me how to make waffles. Yes, I want to learn about those waffles. I don't know. You're gonna go watch Prometheus um, again. I love oh, Prometheus. Prometheus. I'm sorry. I forgot. Problems I, with it. I, do I forgot about that. Um, I mean, he, I'm very excited that he's been cast as Roland, but the 
yeah, I, he's great. I just don't think there's a lot to talk about because he doesn't have a lot to do. I mean, he's playing a pretty straightforward character with a pretty straightforward sort of couple of bits of business. Mm. Um, I don't think it's until later films that he's given anything really particularly fun to do. He gets to bust out of magic ice and save the day. He's the cavalry. <laughs> In a sense, God, those cat, well, those cat eyes. No, when is the cavalry? Those cat eyes. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's worth noting because there was a uh, kerfuffle, shall we say, before the film was released. Oh yeah. Um, because he was, because this, this is interesting. They didn't they didn't care about Hogan, although maybe they all the racists are huge nerds and know that Hogan is actually from a different. Not nah, everyone knows. Um, <laughs> But there was a huge... I remember there was a backlash. There was, well, I don't want to call it a backlash because that gives it more legitimacy than I think it Kerfuffle was a good decision. Let's go with this. Kerfuffle. A bunch of racists were kicked off that a Norse god was played by a black guy. Mm -hmm. And I remember Kenneth Branagh... Basically, Kenneth Branagh and Marvel Studios' official stance was, we don't really give a crap about losing the racist demographic. Um, Hmm. I think is a pretty fair stance to take. Now you got you got oh, yeah. your Idris Elba there. You got your Rene Russo. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, shit. We, Where we, are you we, going? We, with we, no, we haven't mentioned this either. I was I was trying to think of what was the other weird casting thing uh, that we hadn't mentioned. Uh, one one of our three Punishers was in this. Oh yeah, Ray Stevenson. Well, we're gonna have four soon. Yeah, Ray Stevenson, who played the Punisher in Punisher Warstone, also plays Volstagg. Oh wow! I did not notice that. Uh, in a all. fat suit. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> he, he's. I actually love him in that. I love all. I love. I love Jamie Alexander as Sif. I love. Um, I love all of them. I. I. I know that Josh Dallas gets replaced with Zachary Levi later because he was in. He, okay, so fun behind the scenes fact: Zachary Levi was originally intended to play up for Randall. And then scheduling conflicts meant he couldn't, so they put Josh Dallas in the role. Then Josh Dallas got cast in ABC's um, Once Upon a Time. Then Marvel got bought by Disney. Disney didn't want to let Josh Dallas go from their own ABC show, so they just picked up Zachary Levi again and put him back into four two. Mm-hmm. Which kind of is follow pretty- like a lot of casting directors' blogs or something? <laughs> How do you know all of this? I. I live and work in Hollywood. I have I know, to follow all those nonsense. It's, it's just a surprising amount of like detail, and you seem to have it for most of the films that we talk I about. I just want to say, I, I when I when I'll we, tell you after we stop recording. When okay. we got on the casting note, and I said that Ray Stevenson played the Punisher and Volstagg, it took every bit of mental energy I had not to just unconsciously say Ray Winstone again. All right. Um, What about Fred Flintstone? I wasn't listening. He's barrel. He's like seventeen, and he's barrel shaped. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Seventeen-year-old caveman. Um, So (laughs) let's talk about. I was a seventeen-year-old caveman. Uh, <laughs> I was a fugitive from a chain gang in a caveman world. <laughs> That's one of the other six realms. Yeah, there's, there's caveman world. There's that gangster planet from the piece world. of the action. It's, it's hell. <laughs> it's hell. It's, it's Midgard. It's Jotunheim. It's Asgard. It's Svartalheim. And, you know, 
Caveman, caveman planet. planet. <laughs> caveman. Gangster planet. The Nazi that actually planet. is Asgardian. It means the same thing. <laughs> Cave uh, Cave guard. Yeah. Uh, it's a misnomer, though. It's more of an asteroid than a, <laughs> than a cave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Asteroids probably are covered in caves. <laughs> Uh, I've seen the documentary The Empire Springs yeah, Back. That, I know that's dude, that was no cave. <laughs> oh, you're right. Of course. But that cave, that oh, not so cave, was The in ground cave. in that cave was really strange. <laughs> um, and there were Minox. What are Minox? <laughs> Chewing on the power cave. Oh, Minox yeah. planet. Uh, that's the last one. Escape um, from Minox planet. So... So is there anything left to say about Thor? Um, well, hold on. I re- agree with me, or I'm asking you to at any camp. That is probably the hardest that he has ever tried to do anything in his entire life. Agree or disagree? Agree. Agree. Yeah. I think that's. I think that mo- that moment is really well shot, really well acted i think that i think that's like one of the most defining moments of the character yeah it, fe- it feels like a real king yeah nuts. that and the moment when he retreats in the third act yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah he retreats for probably the first time in his life when he says no i'm just a human i'll just get in the way i'm gonna help usher these people to safety mm-hmm. it's a very i mean because the whole point is teaching thor humility and there's like that's mm-hmm. he there's no more humbling scene than than that bit where he's He's literally being allowed to f- try and fail to pick up his yeah. hammer, like, it, and he's literally crawling around in the mud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, there's nothing more humbling. It, that's humbling as hell. Yeah. Uh, and I mean H E L the uh, Asgardian realm of the dead, <laughs> not H E L L. So I, I kind of so I kind then of, um, um, I guess that's the end of the second act, yeah. and then they have to fight Cyclops Bot in yeah. the third act. Robocops, yeah. Uh, I kind of zoned out yeah, for I kind of nice. zoned out for a minute there, and I just I want to say this, and I, I can cut this out if need be. I almost made a joke, but then I needed to stop and try to understand what the joke was before realizing that it made no sense, not even to me. And it was this: um, <laughs> there was a British politician uh, named Enoch Powell in sort of the middle part of the 20th century, who was a fairly prominent British politician. Very obscure now. I know that name only because it was mentioned once in the Monty Python election night special. And for some reason, that name stuck in my head, but I never put any effort into researching it in any way. When we were just having the conversation about Star Wars, I almost made a joke about, oh, like the great politician, Minoc Powell. <laughs> wow! Yeah, oh. was, I think I need uh, some sleep. No, I don't think you need to edit that out. That was <laughs> it's tight. Obtuse. This is the tightest. Uh, Stefan, Stefan, that's a victory for the liberals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the uh, this is the tightest three hours and ten minutes of this. <laughs> any any thoughts about how this film connects sort of the larger? cinematic universe you know this is because you know, this is the first one that's like i think out of the gate trying to be part of the bigger world like you can see that in phil colson you can see them casting sit well you can see that in the way that like you know they're trying to expand this space idea and there's a there's like a whole bunch of important you know uh MacGuffins that show up over the course of the film there's space. Um, and then of course you know traditional space 
And there's the original Samuel L. Jackson cameo where he shows up at the end and just says, I'm Samuel L. Jackson, and we're going to do more movies. Bye. <laughs> yep. Still making more of these. Um. <laughs> I mean, I think it largely succeeds, if only by virtue of the fact that we we traverse a literal universe here. Like, I mean... You, you get a sense of the expansiveness of, of this, and you, you know, you see all of these characters in, in this kind of grandiose setting. Um, mm-hmm. But it, 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 I mean, this is the first time we've, like, gone to space in the MCU, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, even, you know, even by virtue of that step, um, you get a sense of the kind of grander scale of ambition that seems to be at work here. I bet in the future uh, Marvel Studios uh, studio cut of Thor, you're going to zoom past one of the spaceships from Guardians of the Galaxy <laughs> in that long <laughs> galaxy cross. When Kenneth Branagh goes uh, back to remaster this film digitally in 20 years... And no, not a director's cut, a studio uh, cut. <laughs> when Kevin Feige sits down to put in thing. his original vision of what this film was going to be. Yeah, Skywalker. Yep. It'll be, it'll be a shot of Groot, and he just goes from one corner to the opposite corner. <laughs> <laughs> In the background, where no one can see You're him. Right. <laughs> Groot is just hanging out in Asgard. I am Ken uh, today. So, Act 4, uh, they get back to... Uh, <laughs> no, we've, we've uh, Heimdall this. wakes up. We've done this already. <laughs> Br- mm-hmm. Brings him back. And then they they have the fight on the bridge... And this is right. this is how you know that this is a romance movie, because as he's destroying Bridge, the only thing that that uh, Loki says is, uh, "If you destroy it, you'll never see her again." He doesn't say, "If you destroy that, none of us can leave our realm." You're taking the entire universe away from all of us. I just want to his only. <laughs> Argument for why he shouldn't do, or maybe he's just trying to convince Thor. So he thinks that's the thing that appealed to him most. I think he just thought that was what was going to convince Thor. I think he was just basically trying to get him to stop, and was willing to throw anything at him that he thought would work. I just want to point out that if Nick Bester were here, if Nick Bester were here, uh, (laughs) God rest his soul. um, Every time the romance novel thing came up, he would have been talking about Fabio and about how Fabio should have played. No. Actually, no, he would probably point out that uh, Chris Pratt is the most attractive of um, the MCU Chris's because he's very insistent about this, mostly because he thinks that Chris Pratt's character from Parks and Rec is most like himself of all characters on Parks and Rec. Uh, he sees him as a tall, oafish character, and so he loves Chris Pratt. I don't know that Nick would admit that this is why he thinks that Chris Pratt is the most attractive of the, the Hemsworth uh, Evans Pratt trio of MC Chris's. So in there for just for kicks. No, 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 I'm sure that that's the reason. It's the three. It's the three Chris's, <laughs> and they are going to start in a Three Stooges style series of shorts, um, is... where they're plumbers and they're painters. I just, I, trying to play baseball. I mean, Pratt and Hem- Pratt and Evans are like close enough friends. I'd buy that. I'm. I think that the three of them just playing their MCU characters would be just as good of a road movie. As uh, Rhodey and uh, Tony Stark, or Gambit and Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I wasn't even on that podcast. I remember Gambit, that. Wolverine, and Thor picking up chicks. 
Filling up at the gas station in Des Moines. Wolverine wants to buy some cars. Thor's in town! We're gonna party! <laughs> By in town, I mean on the planet, for the record. Although I guess it's different universes. <laughs> so, I think we should, no, I think they, we should they move just, They just need another film in the Magic Mike franchise with these three. Yeah. You just remake, you remake Magic Mike XXL. Just make it, it's the same plot. It's the same road movie plot. Uh-huh. I don't know. You could like switch up. Like maybe it's not Myrtle Beach. Maybe it's like Space Myrtle Beach. But just make the same movie with the Marvel Chris's. Yeah. Wait. Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach. Uh, first of all, I still can't believe that Magic Mike is a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Second of all, what is that response to Magic Mike Two or whatever it's called? XL. XXL. Yeah. XXL. XXX. I'm not sure. Talk, talking about uh, dicks. Yeah, Derek, is that the actual plot to yes? Mike to- <laughs> I, I didn't hear you. Yes, <laughs> it's. I'm sorry that I don't know that. It's one of the greatest films of uh, last year. Okay, the Great Myrtle Beach Road Trip Vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should move into final thoughts. Uh, if we're not already there, I agree. Because <laughs> yes. uh, tonight's my night to cook dinner. So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I got you. Dude, what what are your final thoughts? Um, I I would say that I liked the ending to this film. I think I guess more than you guys did. Um, I kind of liked that it just petered out, and that the humans on Earth were left with no answers because the decision that he made was to destroy the bridge. So. He just has to live with that, and he doesn't get any resolution. They don't get any resolution. Why should we? That's just selfish. <laughs> the universe is empty and horrifying and means nothing. <laughs> Derek, final thoughts. This has been Annihilism Hour with Yeah, this, this has been Dooge interprets Thor as a 1970s Arthur Penn film. <laughs> I don't know the reference, but uh, I don't think that it's nihilistic. I think it's, you know, like, life goes on. More... You, you can't just spend all of your time waiting for hunky men to fall out of the sky. You have science well, to do. Love, you have to get back well, to it. More love crap. And he has yeah, in the dark. And kinging we'll to that in the dark world. Huh. Okay, Derek, your final thoughts. So what's it, what's implied <laughs> that happened to Loki uh, here? Does he just fall <laughs> off into space? Does he go all the way back to Jotunheim? I don't remember from Avengers. He, uh, he, he falls through space, Thanos catches him, and basically is like, hey, I think I can use guy? it. That's very convenient. Uh, Derek, your thoughts works. Your thoughts. Uh, yeah. The film's fine. Uh, <laughs> performances were enjoyable. It it was not the worst way to spend two hours. Uh, yeah, that's what I have to say. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Patrick, it's it's like completely in the middle of the pack for me. Yep. Patrick, you're up. Final thoughts? Uh, I enjoy this one. I definitely think it's kind of got some flaws. Um, I think some of these flaws will become... We'll talk about more how the... Like the, the, flaw, the cracks will become further amplified in, in, in later uh, installations, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, for the moment, it is... I, I do enjoy adore it, even though I think... I, I feel like there are some characters who get a short shrift, and I think that's just unfortunate. Like, something... Something had to get cut, and they decided that's what deserved to get cut. And I, I kind of mourn that because you know I think there's some interesting stuff that we're not seeing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, there were a few good deleted scenes for this, but actually yeah. none of them were the ones that you really want to see of like more characterization so much. Yeah, there's a th- there's a scene where Loki and Thor make fun of each other's helmets. Um, but oh, I forgot that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> but I I you know I like this one. You know, I think you know it. it it's I, I, I middle of the pack. I, I hate saying that because it's sort of like that. It, this is kind of dumb because middle of the pack by definition means it's not bad. Um, but you know, this one is you know it's it's solid. It's fun. You know, there there are parts where it soars, and a lot of those are some of the performances. Um, but and there's a few parts where it trips doesn't do quite as well as it can do, as it can do. But I don't think it ever really crashes in a way that some of the really bad uh, installations have. Like, and I feel like that's kind of. You know, the metric we go with where, you know, there, and, and, there, and that's the thing is that there's nothing wrong with turning a film in that is really great in some parts and generally pretty solid in others. You know, the, yeah. where, where we really always seem to be the most miserable is when you have something that just has like these real just sort of what the hell did I just watch moments. Um, you know, so to me, this one's a solid one. I enjoyed this one. You know, it's, it is a good way to spend two hours. It, it kind of feels a little tight. It feels tighter than some of the later generations because these movies have gotten progressively longer <laughs> as we've gone through them. Um, I'm looking forward to Infinity War having three intermissions in both parts. Mm-hmm. It is literally to- an infinite war. <laughs> yes. Um, but I know I like this one, and I like what it did for the universe. I, li- I think this. I think Thor. I think that they had a really big load on their plate because they had to do a lot of characterization, but they also had to really open up a world mm-hmm. and a lot of. In more than one respect, and I think they did a good job on that one. Um, also, I wanted to mention the uh, guy in the truck who finds the hammer. That is noted scribe J. Michael Straczynski. Oh, Mr. Babylon. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Uh, that he has not bad. aged since the last time I saw him in something, which is the series finale of Babylon Five. Which means I can only assume that once he hit age forty, he basically looks. He's looked eternally 55. <laughs> Which works really um, well for you when you're 70, but not as good when you're 40. <laughs> yes. Um, but no, I, I enjoyed this one quite a bit. You know, I, I don't, it's not one of my, it's not one of my favorites. Mm. Um, you know, I, it's not one I like, like, oh, this one is amazing, but it's a good one to watch. It's cer- And it's not one you're like, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Patrick, I have a personal question for you. Yes. Do you enjoy romance novels? <laughs> No, but my roommate does. Okay, okay. I was just curious. <laughs> I've never. Uh, I have. I have. Really call a romance novel, but I have. Um, since living with my with my with my roommate, uh, and I have kind of come to understand the value of them, if that makes sense. Like okay. I, I understand that I'm not interested in them, and they're not for me. Um, but I can. I you know I can no more hold sort of the overuse of tropes in that. Then I can realistically hold the tropes of, you know, any of the many things that we watch over and over. Oh and over yeah, again. I mean it's you know yeah. it's fantasy wish fulfillment. Yeah. I mean I like wizards and dragons, so I'm not yeah. gonna make fun of wizards for, and like, dragons. Humans, <laughs> exactly. Sort of like you know to to, to kind only of, hunky dragons. Oh. To bash on them to me, I kind of started to say it's like it's to kind of like get irritated at the chosen one narrative. It's like well, yeah, <laughs> but I am irritated with that. Um, uh, uh, I'm gonna just. Okay, I'm just gonna, yeah. Example. I am annoyed with Chosen. Um, just, just to, <laughs> uh, like, kind of as we're thinking about the the way that this wraps up, the thing that will always stick with me from this film, and this is my final thought, is um, 
Natalie Portman finds it really hilarious that uh, Chris Hemsworth cannot say Hubble. <laughs> I was really bothered by that because that has he seen the word Hubble written? Because that's it's a it's a joke about mispronouncing something that you have seen, not mispronouncing something that you have heard. I think it's like when yeah. Daenerys mispronounces Garth in I Game of Thrones, Garth, which would only make sense if you had seen. Uh, you know, if you thought that the Q should be pronounced with a U, I think he knew. He wouldn't even know it was a Q. I think he knew how to say it, and he's been playing this "oh, I mispronounce words" cutely game for centuries. <laughs> well, I had an explanation, but I retract it because I like Stephens more. Yeah, that is much better. <laughs> hey, baby, you want to see my Hubel? The other example. Doctor Lady. Of that joke not playing for me is in Django Unchained where someone where Django has to tell someone that the D is silent but the guy wasn't looking at his name he wouldn't see a D and just say De Django when he'd only ever heard people say it out loud <laughs> you don't add extra letters to things that you hear said out loud you don't anyway. yep. <laughs> well, that, I guess I, I might I don't know but uh, I had to do it all the time <laughs> All right. Uh, um, yeah, there was there was one other thing that I had wanted to say about something near the end of the film. I don't remember. Uh, Deus Ex Hopkins. Uh, oh yeah, I, I have a real problem with the insta coupling of the of these two characters. That I, I guess we went over this earlier, but uh, Patrick talking about the chosen one reminded me of it. And on the, the commentary, Kenneth Branagh said that he was trying to go for the feeling that these two characters are destined to be together, but that does not play for me at all. That did not come through in the film. I actually will agree with you. I think I, it's not that I thought it was impossible for these two to start to, to find, to start being attracted to each other. I thought that was believable. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of like this weird, it's a time scale thing where it's sort of like, you guys have not known each other for long enough for me to really, quite, like, for me to quite buy that you would love her this intensely. The sum total of their relationship is that she hits him with a car twice. (laughs) Yeah, but he also steals her notebook back, uh, and also the pheromones. There are probably the pheromones. That's true. It's it's a fucking high school film. The other... Yeah. The other the other couples in the MCU that we have are like you know Tony and Pepper, where they've known each other for a long time, mm-hmm. um, and oh, Peggy and Steve. And there's a and yeah, I mean the all the other major romantic relationships are characters who where there's an implication they've known each other for a while. Yeah. So it doesn't feel professionally. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, where in this one, it, it, you know, don't fish off the company pier. Yeah. You hit someone with your car, he falls out of the sky, you're like, oh, crazy sky man. He's got oh, a big hammer. crazy sky oh, man. Oh. He's got a big hammer. I, th- I thought he was schizophrenic at first, but it turned out he's actually a god, so I guess he wasn't lying to me. So, whatever. Um, and then I get him into my trailer and I get off a clump. <laughs> you're describing this. Putting my dishes in the cupboard. You're describing this exactly how Woody Allen uh, would. <laughs> Uh, all right. All right. So, so. the Almighty Thor. <laughs>